Hey gang, welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections podcast, the show that brings you the men and women of track and field and explores their unique stories. The show is brought to you by Gill Athletics. Head on over to gillathletics.com to find all your track and field equipment needs. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill. In this episode, our guest is Sue Humphrey. Uh, what an amazing person. I mean, she has sacrificed and done blazed the trail with so many things inside of our profession, Olympic coach, coached a world record uh, holder, coached a gold medalist, uh, coached at University of Texas, Arizona State, many, many more places. This was just an absolute blast. Uh, Really loved our conversation, real open, frank and honest conversation about women in coaching uh, and just hope this blesses you and brings you value. So, hey, let's get into it. So without further ado, please help me welcome the wise the wonderful Sue Humphrey. Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. Uh, We might have to call this the legend series. So uh, first of all, help me welcome the wise and wonderful Sue Humphrey. Sue, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, We just, you know, we always do a pre-interview and I probably could have just had that conversation forever with you. Uh, learned so much and I'm so excited to bring some of that knowledge here to our listeners today. Uh, I alluded to the legend series. Sue, uh, you, this is going to come off terrible, Sue. <clears throat> You've been around for a long time. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> old as dirt. Well, not old as dirt. Smart okay. as, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I thought we would start with you, Sue. Let's go back. Let's start. How did you get into track and field? How did you get into coaching? Uh, what time frame are we talking about? Let's start ex- exploring that. Okay. Well, we're, we're starting back in the 1960s. So we're going back to dirt tracks and uh, no collegiate program, no high school program for girls or women. Everything was through the AAU. And uh, you know, extracurricular activity. So no scholastic things at all. And I started in Phoenix, Arizona, and luckily had to, um, had a great situation there because there were a lot of age group clubs and we had a good network there and had track meets. Well, they might be at an elementary school on a dirt track, you know, and wherever we could find a track, we did have a competition. And so how I got involved with that, though, was when I was a freshman in high school, I uh, had to take an elective. And the elective that I took, which was a real challenging one, was audiovisual. Now, back in that day, think about 1966, oh, yeah. 65, audiovisual meant that you took the projectors around and took the movies to the teachers and the film strips and then collected them. You just blew every (laughs) 30-year-old's mind. They're like, projector, what are you talking about? You didn't have a DVD player? You didn't download it? No, (laughs) no, we didn't have any of that. And, uh, but in that class, there, there was another female. And again, I guess I should have seen the handwriting on the wall with the male world and no females, but uh, the other female was a young lady who was two years older than me, but actually was one of the top sprinters in the nation at the time. And she had just come off of actually beating Barbara Farrell in the national 220 at that time. So uh, she was one of the top sprinters in the nation and we became friends. And so it was through her uh, she trained at a junior college 
and uh, because the, there were no females that could keep up with her, so she had to go train at the junior college. And after a while, she said, well, do you want to come and, you know, just help me or run with me or whatever? And like I say, we found out real fast running with her was not going to be an option. So I became the starting block carrier and the gun holder and so forth. But uh, we'd go to the junior college every day after practice and the men coaches, because again, no women at that time. So uh, they would be working out and that's how I got involved in the sport. So let's paint this picture. If you're listening right now and you're in the 30 to 40 range, year old range, I want you to think about your current situation. You're standing on your track, you know, maybe you got a nice new all weather track and you can see your men's team and women's team practicing. Uh, maybe you you have uh, maybe you're a, you're a woman head coach and you're uh, you're in that role. Uh, maybe you have a, a women's assistant coach. Uh, maybe you're getting ready to uh, get your team prepared for the girls state meet or the women's NCAA. Now let's start erasing that, right, Sue? So uh, look, we talked about the all weather track. That's gone. We're down to gone. dirt tracks, right? Dirt. Um, if you're a women's head coach right now. Uh, that's erased. There, there are no women head coaches. There's no women assistant coaches back in the 60s. Uh, if you're preparing for the girls' state meet or the women's uh, national championship, that's gone. There is no women's team. Uh, you enjoyed watching uh, maybe Stacey DeGrila win the pole vault at the Olympics in 2000, I think it was. That's right. gone. There is no high school team for girls. There is no college team for women. Uh, there's no women coaches. There's AAU, and that is it at this point. Right. But this is before, obviously, we said before NCAA had uh, women's track and field. Uh, before, I think the predecessor to the NCAA was the, is it the AIW? Is that what it was called? AIAW. AIAW. And that was in the mid-70s. So we're even before, like as far back as my history goes, is the IAW, and that ain't even around. Right. Right. Wow. So what in the so world? So we're just under AAU. track? <laughs> again, you know, as you have these field days and running against each other and people are fast. And of course you had the Olympics on TV. So, I mean, you, and back then, ironically, there were professional uh, track meets, but they were always men. And uh, maybe you had one or two women's events in there because by tagging along with this young lady, her dad was kind of her coordinator, coach, manager, whatever you want to say. And so he um, he took me under his wing and brought me to the meets. I got to see the LA Times indoor meets or Sunkissed indoor meets, thing Albuquerque, you know. So I started to get a flavor of the sport, and that's what hooked me into the sport of track and field. And uh, going to these not different only things. are these opportunities not available, the the teams and coaches. So when you said that there were some opportunities for events for women. Um, my, one of my favorite like trivia uh, facts is that it wasn't that long ago we and I say we collectively as the track and field body which was 99.9% male dominated um, didn't even think women could physically run longer than 800 meters like that was the when we did have AIAW and NCAA it was 800 and that was it. Uh, back then you said there were some meets that would have women's events or girls events in high school was it just the hundred or I guess the, was it the hundred yard and things like yeah, that? Yeah, it was a hundred yards or 220 or the 60 indoors. You know, again, it was like a feature event. 
Any field uh, events? Not, you know, on the outdoor meets, yes. The and back then your meets were separate. You had your men's uh, again AAU. You had men's nationals and women's nationals. Oh, separate. And two totally, two, two yeah, two totally separate sites, dates, everything else. Hmm. So this is now like late sixties, early seventies that we're still in the separate facility and you know no crowds really except families and those then we did have a full complement of the events that were legal but like you say no triple jump no pole vault no steeplechase those weren't in until the 90s right right wow how about the um, shot put discus uh, yeah javelin? we had those we had javelin mm -hmm, mm -hmm. high jump yeah. long jump uh relays we had relays. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And again, all of this was a club sport uh, that you did. And the, on the teams, we had a lot of teams back then because there were no school clubs. I mean, school groups. Mm -hmm. So there were the AAU teams and uh, they would be from the region or the city, the area there. So like in Phoenix, we would have maybe eight to 10 girls, women's teams that we would get together even twice a month and have a meet, a competition. Uh, I would take the results down to the Arizona Republic newspaper after the meet and they would print them in the Sunday paper. So uh, I got to know the sports people very well at the Republic there. I, I think that maybe told us something about you, Sue, because I would have to assume uh, with the as little opportunity we were giving girls and women at that time, that there wasn't a lot of interest in it, but yet you still went down, you had the results. You're like, hey, we, our right. results are just as important as anybody else's. I'm gonna take it to the newspaper for, for print. Right, that and and they there. did, you know, that's what was nice is uh, maybe like sometimes we would have a record set of some sort and they'd maybe give us a little paragraph or blurb, but then they would print the results. And I mean, it would be several inches long. So yeah. it was great. And of course, we're talking pre-internet here, everybody, just in case. Oh, yeah. In Forget case you're thinking, internet. well, why didn't you just tweet it? Uh, get out of here, man. We, <laughs> we don't even allow women to run a, a, a steeplechase. Well, you think we have internet at this point? Get out of we here. We didn't have phones. We didn't have any of that. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> Give me that quarter for the pay. Oh, wait, a nickel for the pay phone. <laughs> okay, again, you just blew so many people's yes. minds. A pay phone. What in the world's a pay phone? Oh, man. Right. I love this. This is great. So, so uh, you go through high school, you're running with uh, one individual, you're running AAU. Sounds like kind of maybe, I don't want to say air quotes here, got lucky that you grew up in the Phoenix area. So there was a lot of AAU yeah. club. History could have been a lot different. You grew up in rural Alabama, like I did, or something like that, where we wouldn't have had those opportunities. Um, right. So what did, what did the next steps look for you look like for you as regards to either competing as an athlete on the next level or going to college, coaching? Where, are we, where do we go from here? Okay, well, I'm still in high school. And um, my friend, like I say, she was two years older, so she went to college. And uh, when she left, then her, it was her dad and my mom that were like the adults on the team. <laughs> and then I was the, quote, coach. And so I would, we would have Saturday practices and then we would go to the meet. So I kept the club going. Well, uh, we kept the club going. Remind me how old you are at this time? Uh, 17, 16, 17, 18. And, and you're the coach. You're keeping I'm the it all coach. together. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I mean, know. for a while, I had to have one of the adults go with me because I wasn't legal. I wasn't 18, so I had to have help. <laughs> I couldn't imagine today having an 18-year-old, 17-year-old be responsible for a teen. Holy cow. Yeah. No, I, and that's, you know, they, I had one, one young lady who was a year older than me, which was kind of funny. She was a sprinter on the team. But, but you other were coaching. Than that, they, yeah. Other than that, they were younger. And, you know, and I picked up by going to the junior college all the time, I pick up with the male coach or the coaches there mm -hmm. and kind of learned what they were doing. And again, blow the people's minds. Go back then, we had libraries and you had to go read a book. And, uh, you know, there weren't podcasts, there weren't mm -hmm. any of the electronic devices. So you had to really research and learn and uh, read books and learn about all the events and that's what i did and so there were some books at that time uh, but was more of the education sharing person to person like you saw the junior college coach so you'd ask him like hey why are you warming up this way or hey why are you having your high jumpers do this right right mm -hmm. a lot of it was you know watching and like you say asking questions or just like listening and say oh well, that makes sense and then you know getting the Tom Ecker books of biomechanics and learning biomechanics and figuring that out. And I don't know how or why, but I kind of gravitated toward the field events uh, versus running. You know, running to me just seemed at that time, so coaches don't take me out of quote here. At that time, it seemed pretty basic. You just ran. Mm -hmm. I realize now it's a lot more than that. But, right. you know, back then it was like the field events intrigued me because there was a little more to it and uh, the technique type of things. So we kept the age group team through that. I go to college at Arizona State, or wait a minute, no, I went to Phoenix College. Hmm. I went junior college for two years mm -hmm. and uh, kept the age group team on the side, but I'm still a college, full-time college student. And again, logged on, uh, latched on to the men's track team because uh, I went in and talked to the men's coach. He made me the manager of the men's track team at Phoenix College. So for two years, I'm now interacting with them and those coaches and athletes daily. I am, I mean, I'm a little blown away here, Sue, because, uh, you know, if someone were today right now telling me, hey, in 2010, as a 18 year old freshman, I walked into the coach's office and asked a coach and manage and things like that, I'd be like, wow, that, that takes a lot of, of bravery and, you know, leadership. You're doing this back when a time when, uh, and again, don't take me out of context, air quotes, you're not supposed to be coaching. You're not supposed right. to be. Uh, no, exactly. I mean, when I would go, like I say with, uh, her name was Jenda Jones, the sprinter. And when I go with her dad, he would take me to these coaches meetings. And like we had an Arizona Track Coaches Association that kind of coordinated the meets. He even took me to some of the AAU meetings uh, in Arizona that would be in different cities, which would be all sports. So he allowed me to tag along, if you will, to see kind of the administrative side of things. So even though, right, I was 17, 18 years old, I was seeing it from both sides. So it didn't seem strange to me to go in and ask to be a manager. Yeah. Did you have any idea of the type of pioneering you were doing at that point or were you kind of an I hate to say an oblivious 18 year old that's a big generalization but you know you're just you're kind of caught in your own world at that point as an 18 year old rightfully so uh, or did you kind of have an understanding like oh I'm I'm doing some things different that 
no one else is doing or even allowed to do? Well, I knew I was doing things differently because when I looked around the room, I was the only female there. So sure. that was a, a telltale sign. But again, I believed in it and enjoyed it. And we were having good results, obviously. So, you know, then that encouraged me too. And so you parlayed Phoenix College. You go, is that when you now transfer to Arizona State? And so then I went there? to Arizona State to finish and get my degrees. And again, coaching. Uh, in the evenings and weekends and a full-time student. So I get my degree in teaching. Hmm. And, um, and actually when I went to junior college, I, my major was journalism oh. because I'd done journalism in high school. And that's probably why I took the results to the yeah, newspapers. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, but then again, now we're looking at 1972 hmm. and to continue in journalism as a female, was gonna be society pages and tea parties and social engagements. And I was like, mm, that doesn't really intrigue me. And uh, actually at Phoenix College, I did journalism and was the sports editor of the school newspaper. And then my second year was the editor of the school newspaper. Sue, so, I, knew, I knew you and I would get along. So I'm a print journalism major from the greatest university in the world, Troy University. Uh, and also was our school newspaper sports editor and assistant ed uh, associate editor in chief of the entire newspaper. I knew we would. There you go. See? Here, Sue, that's it. Yeah. Now, you, you went on to do something much, much more important, though. You, you went on in, to get an education degree. So that's, that's way better than journalism, trust me. Yeah, but my motive there was a little, and I will admit it. So it, by after leaving Phoenix College, I had to kind of figure on a major. Mm -hmm. because like I say was I going to continue in journalism or what was I going to do so in looking around at the various majors I figured well education is good because that's kind of what I'm doing and I'll have the summers off for track meets so, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yes. so I became a teacher to have the summers off for track meets and to keep working with the youth so that all worked out those are great motivations to be a teacher and there's so much more to it right like uh, I mean having summers off is like a small price to pay for a teacher and what they do. Was, oh yeah, no, I'm I'm kidding about the track. Right. You know, I mean, but that was part of it. But were there uh, was anybody a mom mom or dad a teacher? Was there a teacher in high school that you were like, oh man, I want to be like him or her? What 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 was the passion to become besides having summers off for track? What was yeah, to become a teacher. That that was that was the sideline. But no, my my dad was president of the school board when I was in elementary school. Okay. So there was the education push there and just none of them were teachers. He worked for American Airlines and uh, my mom was full-time mom at home mm -hmm. because back then that's what you did. Mm -hmm. And um, so no push to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. I just think, you know, working with the kids, I enjoyed that and um, enjoyed just, it keeps me young working with the kids, even nowadays, you know, is to, keeping up and learning all these rappers and all that stuff not that i enjoy that but <laughs> hold on i could have guessed a hundred things that we would have talked about today and none of them would have been about rappers of today <laughs> yes no i do know some of them uh, i don't i know the beats but i don't know the words and it's probably better i don't know the words <laughs> i was gonna say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man sue uh, i love this this is great so um you going to get your education degree and your, your master's as well? Is that right? My master's. Uh, so I, 
I get the education degree and ironically get a, my student teaching was at a school where some of the track kids were, the club kids. Yeah. So actually I student taught in a classroom where some of my weekend warriors, shall you say, mm -hmm. were in the classroom. And uh, I've always had the athletes call me Sue. I've never been a Miss Humphrey or Coach Humphrey type of, you know, and I think it's because my age, you know, I was pretty much their age. Mm -hmm. So uh, the kids yeah. in the classroom, it was fifth grade classroom, it was kind of funny because they'd raise their hand for help and sometimes they go, Sue, Sue, instead of like Miss Humphrey, you know, because they were used to being around me as Sue. Right. So we had to have a little discussion about that. But once we got that through, I, you know, during school days when I'm in a dress, right, <laughs> then right. I'm Miss Humphrey. And when I'm uh, at practice in shorts, then I'm Sue. So right, that right. worked out. And so I got a job teaching there in that area. And, uh, middle school age, fifth, sixth grade. So I guess that's middle school now mm -hmm. and um, was full-time teaching. And then that's when in 1975, Title IX comes in. And so I'm just happy doing my club coaching and full-time teaching. And uh, I hear about this Title IX stuff where they're gonna start collegiate track. And uh, I get a call from the athletic director at Arizona State uh, that they are now having to put in a women's program and would I be uh, interested in coming in as a part-time assistant to be a you know start the women's program basically so and I guess IX, one of my club parents had recommended me is what he said so title nine helped us start getting women's programs is that when AIAW start AI I'm sorry I'm right. the time right educate me say it again is it AIAW yeah. Okay. Association okay. of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Or for women, yeah. Something. So we start getting some some women's programs in college. And, and again, for you, for you guys and gals out there for history, uh, the NCAA was not willfully going along here. They needed this no. push. <laughs> they, I think you said it right, Sue. They had to start a women's program, not, oh, yeah. you get to. No, no, no. It was had to. No, uh, it was definitely not welcomed. Give us the scope. So that's right here in the middle, right? So we're getting women's programs for college. Give us the above and below scope. Are, how are we doing for Olympics on women? And how are we doing on the high school level for girls at that same time? High schools started a few years after that uh, because some of the club, when I was at ASU, I had some of my older club athletes that could still, that could drive come over to ASU and they would practice after the collegians. And so they were getting pressure now, the late seventies is when the high school track became more popular, shall we say in Arizona at least. And so that's when the push came for them to, to run high school instead of AAU. Mm -hmm. And so the Olympics were still, again, a post-collegiate type of AAU situation. So you know, that wasn't really affected because that mm. program just kept going. But, but still, now there's more opportunities. But still capped off at the 800 for women? Uh, no, they, they, we had we had the mile. Um, okay. I don't know if we had more than a mile, but I know right. we had a mile, 1500. Okay. We had race walk, uh, right. 1500 race walk. So you get, you come over to Arizona State and you're the head women's track and field coach at Arizona State, right? Uh, of course not. Uh, <laughs> God forbid. That's right. uh, they, they would, uh, they had me as the part-time assistant 
And then I guess to save money, they made the assistant men's coach, the head women's coach on paper. Okay. So he was the full-time staffer there for women on paper. And then I came over in the afternoons after school. And luckily my principal worked with me and gave me the last period off my planning period. All right. So I could leave like at 2.20 and drive over to ASU. I was teaching in Scottsdale, which if any of you know Scottsdale and Tempe, it's, you know, 20, 30 minutes. So right. it's not too bad. So I would drive over to ASU and then meet the team and we would uh, coach. And the head coach primarily did the sprints hurdles and then I did the field events mm. but we had to start recruiting and get you know there were some girls on campus you kind of say any women you want to come out for track so we had a few actually that were in the um were at Arizona State as students that were on the club program or the club mm. circuit so they would then come over and run for us too so we did get a few that way at the beginning but then we had to go into the recruiting concept when you said you were coaching field events uh jumps and throws or just jumps from yes the jumps and throws so all field events then yeah all the field events we didn't have pole vault right. yet and we didn't have triple jump right right so what was that experience like you're you're the administrator, you're doing all the head coaching duties, yet you're the part-time assistant who has to, uh, just to put food on the table, you got to, <laughs> you still got to teach. Like you're, you're not full-time. Right. No. So my day would be go to school, teach the full load of seventh and eighth graders at that time, drive over to Arizona State, uh, take my homework with me of any papers to be graded, because I was an English teacher primarily, so that was a lot of paperwork. Um, coach, and then go in and do recruiting or order equipment or whatever type of things we needed to do. Um, and then go home and <laughs> grade whatever papers I had or could do and uh, start it again the next day. And then after a few years, I integrated my master's degree in there. So I was going to school twice a week to get my master's degree too. So uh, looking back, I don't know how I did it. But yeah, exactly. I, I was gonna say, how in the world did you do that? I mean, I, with all the technology we have today, I don't know how anybody could do that today. You're doing this with the, like I said, you have the manual grading of all the papers, English right. for crying out loud. The paperwork was much more laborious, maybe not as much, but uh, you didn't get to do it on a computer. Oh no, <laughs> oh no. No, I had my little desk yeah. and uh, I did get a little office, so that was nice. It was in the locker room. So uh, I at least kept track as people would come in and out, I would uh, be able to contact them or whatever. And I had the equipment there. Um, Ironically, to begin with, we had homemade uniforms that uh, one of the girl's grandmothers had made the year before when it was a club sport. So we had our little polyester uh, outfits that uh, I took and got silkscreened uh, Arizona State on them. And that was our first, uh, our first uniform. And this is around 1976-ish, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, I picked 1976 because that's the year I was born. <laughs> now, many of you listening right now are very close to my age, whether you're a few years younger, a few years older. So here within my lifetime, you have 
a part-time assistant coach at Arizona State that was forced, and, and I'm not picking on Arizona State here, all the uh, colleagues. They all did it. Yeah. Pretty much, you know, there's some that led the way with like the Tiger Bells and, and things, uh, but they were forced into it. Uh, they hire a part-time coach to coach the women. Don't even give her the title, by the way. I mean, let's start there. You don't even have uniforms. The grandma has to make homemade uniforms. I, I mean, what are we doing here, folks? This is within my own lifetime. Holy cow. How were you accepted by the other coaching staff and, and the, the women's team in general? Was it with open arms or was it like, just do your thing over in the corner? Well, the, the head coach for women, the assistant men's coach, he was great and we got along. Uh, the other coach, kind of the head men's coach, he kind of tolerated me and I was there and I didn't get in his way and that was fine. Uh, again, we had separate athletic departments at that time. So sometimes like once a month or whenever they'd have the women's coaches meetings, I'd have to get over uh, to the women's side, the women's PE department and go to the women's coaches meetings. Uh, he never went to those. That was part of my job too. So, um, you know, I would, I was welcomed by them because we were all kind of in the same boat, you know, with that. So it, you know, and I think I don't want to, put ASU down because right. I mean again at that time that was kind of the way everything was done like you mentioned with Coach Temple that was through even though it was Tennessee State it was still through AAU club type things oh, okay. uh, I don't believe he ever ran AIAW Nationals hmm. so his he ran the the AAU Nationals and won team titles there and hmm. of course had outstanding record so you mentioned AIAW Nationals. Was there a national meet from the get-go or did it have to progress to eventually have to a national meet? Well, I know, I'm not sure the first year if there was, I don't remember that, but I know we did have it because then we'd have like a regional championship um, and then a national championship. So I remember going to those and, and actually in 78, I think it was, we were fourth in the nation uh so we we put together a, a real good team uh primarily sprinters and jumpers just because in 76 77 the asu men won the national championship hmm. so we were that helped our recruiting because we were able to dovetail off of their success uh in just getting in the door with people you mentioned recruiting how different was recruiting back then especially for you've invented a sport collegiate women's track. What was the recruiting back like back then? Okay, well, AIAW rules, no travel, no visits. Uh, you know, there's not money for any of that. If they wanted to pay to do it, they could. So basically, it was phone calls, uh, yes, on a rotary phone, and, uh, <laughs> and letter writing. Because again, we didn't have text, we didn't have internet, email, none of that. So it was letter writing. And of course, that was part of my job too. Yeah. So um, we, the the men's coach or the women's coach that was the men's assistant coach, you know, he had a lot of contacts with sprinters and their coaches. So he was able to pull in some people that way. And then a lot of it was just reaching out and, you know, networking and all of that. The Probably the most memorable situation for me because I would I was able to pull in some of my club contacts too you know like oh, people right. I've known from mm -hmm. the AAU side from Albuquerque from California you know so we did get athletes that way 
uh, but I got a three-page handwritten letter one time, and I was reading through it, and this athlete, it was from Connecticut, and this athlete is telling me all about how great she is and good and all of this stuff, and then at the very bottom, it was signed Brenda Calhoun. Well, Lee Calhoun's daughter, the hurdler, the oh, Olympic gold medalist yeah. hurdler, Lee Calhoun, it was his daughter. Wow. And so she had reached out to us and I'm like, oh my God, yes, you know. So <laughs> Brenda came and then in 76, there was a high school hurdler that made the Olympic team, Rhonda Brady, out of Gary, Indiana. And uh, I had known her coach through AAU stuff. So I got her signed. So we had the networking of, or the beginning of a really solid world-class team coming yeah. in. Because how could you even find out results? I mean, again, there was no dice stat and there was no track no. and field news. And was even though you mentioned some of those recruits like Gary were kind of far, was recruiting more therefore regional because you might be able to pick up the Phoenix paper and get state results from around or maybe well, or, you know you trusted people that they were telling you the truth too mm. you know there was it was a different world of um maybe integrity back then so mm. you know as to people would call or there were different magazine like there was this little uh not a track and field news at that time but women's track and field news maybe uh that a man in california produced vince real put it out it was a mm. pink newsletter that came out maybe monthly yeah, pink, of course. Of course and yeah. so um, you would get results that way. And then going to different meets, you would see people. And uh, like I say, in California, or, you know, I would go to different national meets with my age group kids. Mm -hmm. And of course, at that time, they would have the high school divisions too, because the high school track wasn't as common yet. Right. So, yeah. you know, I kind of saw people that way. And were there scholarships back then? We did have some scholarships and, uh, you know, so some people were full ride, some people were, you know, partial, kind of like the way it is now, financial aid. So, and that's where the, the, uh, the head women's coach, he knew all of that intricacies of how to play with those numbers and do that. So that was in his area. You know, people are, and I'm not putting down, we have our own issues today in 2020 with coaching and recruiting and things, but boy, if you think you've got it tough, I hope you're listening to this story. Uh, and if you don't know what a rotary phone is, by the way, go Google image rotary phone. And, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll you couldn't move around. Bottom line, you yeah. had to sit yeah. at the desk and stay there because the cord was not that long. <laughs> and now look at us. We get to chat through the internet at, at any whim. We could just press a button and we're almost live right. with a person. Love that. So take us what happened. How long were you at Arizona State? What's after Arizona State? Okay, well, after a year and a half at Arizona State, uh, the head women's coach was having some personal issues. And I read in the paper one morning, I opened it up, and there was a paragraph that he had shot himself. Oh, oh and, yeah, he was having problems, yes. Yeah, he was having problems. So uh, he, ba he blew his shoulder off. Um, and um, actually, then I never really saw him again. But he... Uh, <laughs> he obviously was out of the picture yeah. and so the women's ad calls me in and kind of is like well sue it's you know your game here you go uh however i was not a full-time assistant i was still the part-time assistant 
and everything stayed the same except I'd lost him as the head coach. Oh. And so it was, uh, I had an excellent manager and myself, and we basically put the team together and ran the team and traveled with the team and we got uniforms and, uh, you know, did our thing. And um, that was a year and, and, you know, obviously we we're upset that he had issues, but you know, we tried to make things as seamless as possible given that situation. But then that summer of 77, uh, ASU, of course, opened the job that was still head women's coach and assistant men's coach. So I did apply. And uh, again, I'm, what, 26 years old now. And so uh, I applied thinking, you know, I had done a good job and stepped in and yeah. No brainer. You know, right? they, they should uh, consider that. Well, they hired a man who had uh, coaching experience on men's teams. And the athletic director, he, I do give him credit, he at least called me and explained why I didn't get the job rather than just a letter in the mail. So I did appreciate that. But one yeah. of the main reasons was because I had never coached men before. Well, and wait a so. <laughs> but, but he had never coached women before. Well, but that's what I asked. I said, well, has this guy coached women before? And the AD goes, well, no. And I was like, well, how is that different? Yeah. But he was the AD and I was the part-time assistant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so good point. <laughs> things stayed the same. And the, the new guy comes in as a head coach and um, we just didn't gel. Let's put it that way mm -hmm. there. It, it, I don't know totally why, but just, we didn't get along too well, but, you know, I go, went with the flow as much as possible and tried to, you know, I don't think he liked that I wasn't there during the day, but mm. then I'm like, well, talk to the bosses because I have to, I can't, you know, I can't work for free. Right. So, um, you know, it just, we just didn't get along. And then, uh, unfortunately, there were some things going on off the track that, professionally and personally I just couldn't deal with uh, his behavior if it was a me too movement back then he would have been top of the list mm -hmm. uh, for you know concerns gotcha. so yeah. we didn't have safe sport we didn't have all these others the women were afraid to put anything in writing even though the women's AD had asked mm -hmm. so after you know several years of trying to deal with that uh, and and I had recruited a high jumper, Colleen Sommer, or she was Colleen Reinstra back then. And uh, she was she came in and was like winning nationals, uh, six four high jumper. Uh, and again, this is in 1980. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a minute, we take six four right now. Holy cow! Yeah. So she she came in and was doing really well and was working multi event areas and things and she knew the girls on the team the ladies on the team knew what was going on and so we had kind of the two camps you know the pro him and pro me and so you know it just wasn't a good scene and um but colleen was doing so well you know as a coach you just never know when you're going to get an elite level athlete and right. you never know how many and all that well she basically said to me after sophomore year that she wasn't going to be able to continue uh, at ASU if he was the head coach mm -hmm. and she was getting married that summer 
which uh, was fine. And he, her husband got a job in Southern California. So they were gonna move to Southern California and she gave up her scholarship and everything else. And so I was 30-ish, I guess, I guess I was 30 then. And it was kind of like, you know, midlife crisis at age 30. What do I do? You know, because I'm not happy at ASU given the situation. I've got an elite level athlete who's one of the top in the nation, NC2A champion, because now we're in NC2A. No, no, we were still AIW. We're still AIW. You know, what do I do? So um, basically had, again, the midlife crisis, took out my retirement money. I had a a promise of a job in Southern California that unfortunately did not materialize. But I basically said, I'll never know if I'll have an athlete like Colleen again. I'm moving to Southern California. So packed everything up. I'm a native of Phoenix, you know, so, but I have friends in Southern California just from going to meets over there. So go to Southern California. She becomes a student at Long Beach State. They don't really have a program there at the time, Um, but they had, well, I guess they had a little bit of a program because actually the coach, Ron Buss, let me be a volunteer assistant so we could use the facilities. And so she was a part-time student, newly married, and and then training. So now our big issue was how do we get around and pay uh, for right. travel and all that? Because now you don't have a club or a school. <laughs> the number one problem when you uh, go pro <laughs> out of college is uh, all that infrastructure goes away. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, that's where another blessing came into my life. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain. Wait, wait, wait. And the yes. Wilt Chamberlain? The Wilt Chamberlain. Okay. He, um, he was coaching. I mean, he was sponsoring women's track clubs back in that time wow and so he had worked a deal with bob kersey jackie joiner kersey bob kersey ucla mm-hmm. flo joe and all that he had wilt's athletic club and i had known will unofficially through the years because he would always be at the mount sac relays and we would always be at the mount sac relays and uh he was always he was over by long jump a lot and so one of my long jumpers befriended him and vice versa you know it's platonic obviously and uh you know just that's how i got to know him so basically we i forget how it worked out but we became part of women wilt's athletic club that's awesome so wilt was our travel and uh he he paid me gas money for a month each month he paid me like a hundred dollars for gas money he was a heck of and a he, track athlete himself, too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. High well, he came and, out sometimes to Long Beach and would do different things and, you know, straddle, high jump, and goof yeah. around and things. It was pretty funny. The <laughs> so. track's universal, man. Big-time basketball player. He just loved to goof around and high jump. That's awesome. Man. Right. That's cool. And he yeah. supported track. That that says a lot right there. He didn't have to Women's do that. track. Yeah. yeah. Women's yeah. track. Oh, it was, just, it was just women's. He didn't have a yeah. will men's team i mean i think greg foster i you know because some of those guys the ucla guys at the time andre phillips greg foster Mm -hmm. they had shoe contracts so i think they were running more like for the shoe company but like on wilt's athletic club we had jeanette bolden flo joe jackie um lashawn ned and then colleen (laughs) so that 
that was our survival yeah. in the early 80s after leaving Arizona State. Gosh. Is the, uh, so early 80s, uh, we know what happened in 80. Um, so there, there is a viable Olympic team in regards to 84, the trials and um, going on to the Olympics. And there's uh, maybe a professional circuit at that point or how, right. did, how did it look for women right. at that time? Well, we had the indoor meets. And so again, whether it be in San Diego, Oakland, LA, you know, there were indoor circuits. And so uh, Colleen was with Puma. We were able to get a contract with Puma. And so she had meets and had opportunities to get around uh, based on either Wilt or uh, Puma. So that was good and uh, did very well, you know, in the indoor circuit. In fact, in 82, she set the world record, indoor world record, uh, two meters. She was actually Colleen Sommers, the first woman to clear two meters in the world. And it was indoors, February 14th, 1982, in Ottawa, Canada. And um, <laughs> Dwight was there, so Dwight saw it. And um, Joni Huntley was kind of funny because she was like, man, I thought I would be the first one to clear two meters. So she was a little upset. But yeah, we're getting uh, to three. So two is like the, the bear, you're right. Yeah. So, <laughs> like you know, that was, <laughs> that's the barrier for women's high jump. And to do that back in 1982, yeah. like I say, nobody, no female had done that. So it was a world record for a year until the Russians came along. And then and they. You, and you were her coach. I was her coach. Hey, let me tell you, there is a small fraternity of coaches who have coached the Olympic team or, you know, things like that, Olympic champions. What is the fraternity of coaches who have coached a world record? I mean, holy cow, Sue. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, that's amazing. Wow. I, I barely, I never coached a school record holder. So, I mean, what, I, I, I can't even carry your, your bag of measuring tapes and stopwatches here soon. Oh, what, sure. <laughs> what were you doing to make a living at this point, though? I mean, it's one thing to get gas money and stuff. Are you teaching? Are you, did Long Beach State hire you on full time? What are we doing here? You got, you got to survive here. Okay. Well, you know, self-serve gas stations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked at a self-serve gas station at night from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. And uh, that was my shift. And um, it was a little scary at times because back then we didn't have the automatic pumps that you would like tell it how much money or how much gas to put in. Right. So we had what was called drive-offs. In other words, if somebody would fill it up and then not come over and pay, they would just drive off and get the free tank of gas. So that's what we were supposed to, quote, watch for. Well, we're in this, what I hoped was a bulletproof glass and case. You and <laughs> There was never any assurance that that was true. Never any assurance, and I didn't want to test it. But uh, it was like, you should go out and get them to pay. Well, one time I went out and got hit by a door because the guy, it was one of those old uh, station wagons, and the door was open, and he it ran right past me so I'm like okay well we'll just let that one go oh, man. and uh, I had a motorcycle run off on me one time but uh, that was my income along with my retirement money so I was oh, definitely right. living living on uh, very little money uh, when that when the the 
gas station was a good job because they gave me Saturdays off and it was night. So, you know, I could do the track during the day. So let so me I ask you, based around track. you have the um, luxury now of it's being 2020. So we're looking back, you know, almost 40 years ago. So you have the luxury of experience and, and things like that. Right. I got to ask you why, why as a 30 year old woman teacher, were you the sacrifice you're, you're making here, you're working midnights at a gas station. Uh, you're getting a hundred dollar gas money, which probably was a lot back then. <laughs> not, not yeah. That might get you a tank. Uh, I just uh, help, help me understand why the sacrifice when you could go and become a teacher and no one would have faulted you at all. I love the sport and I wanted to see how far Colleen could, or how high actually Colleen mm -hmm. could go as an athlete. In other words, the, the coach-athlete relationship we had been working on and building and was successful. And like I say, as a coach, you never know if you're going to get an athlete of that caliber again. Um, now, you know, hindsight, I was blessed to, to have another athlete like that ability. But at that time, you just never know. And so I was committed to the development and the program that we had developed and was willing to do that and to work odd jobs. You know, I did teacher's aid. I did, because ironically, California would not accept my Arizona teaching credential. So I had to get recertified, which I finally did. It took me two years to do that, but uh, finally did that in 83. So then 83, 84, I did have a full-time teaching job. I wasn't in the gas station anymore. Thank goodness, first yes. of all. Uh, and maybe, you know, if you've listened to a few podcasts, maybe you've heard me talk about, you know, the parable of selfless and selfish. What a definition of selfless, Sue. I mean, to sacrifice a full-time job of teaching and things like that, to see how high, how high can we go? What's our max here? What can we do? Let's have no regrets. Let's, let's just go do oh. it. And if I have to work a Midnights at the, uh, if I got to go stop motorcycle, how are you stopping a motorcycle from stealing gas? Not very fast, not very well. <laughs> and, and, and I know you're thinking, I, I, I'm in the mindset of the other 30 and 40 year olds today, and they're going, why would you do that? Just the security camera, catch the license plate. There ain't no security cameras back then. If they were, they were grainy and black yeah. and white. You wasn't getting no driver's uh, license tag, car tags. Holy cow, Sue. Okay, where do we I believed, go? I believed in what we were doing. And I think Obviously. that, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing is it was as much, uh, you know, as valuable to me and important to me. And just it was exciting, obviously, to see what, what she could do, I mean, what we could do. There's words and there's action. And boy, Sue, you did the proverbial put your money where your mouth. You didn't have any money for crying out loud. Right. Didn't, didn't have even, any money. No. Yeah, you didn't even teach. Put my hundred dollar gas card where my mouth is. I'm going to do. Right. I'm not just going to say. I'm going to do, man. Holy. I walk to the store. You don't drive to the store. <laughs> oh, okay. Where do we go from here? That's amazing. Uh, we're okay. Eighty four ish, I think. Eighty, eighty-three, eighty-four. Okay. Um, okay. Eighty four Olympics obviously are in Los Angeles. So that's what everything was being focused toward. Oh, and I did track. have some other uh, jumpers, some other jumpers there at Long Beach and or a club that we were working toward it. Well, as nature would have it, 
Colleen got pregnant. And <laughs> I, <laughs> thank you, nature. But I always knew, you know, when she got, if and when she got pregnant, that she was going to go through with that and have the baby and all that. So that was never an issue for me, even though it was like a, a shock, obviously, because here everything we've been working for and then Mother Nature stepped in. So I did have two other jumpers that qualified for the trials and competed there. And then it was the spring. And like I said, I was full-time teaching then in Long Beach. And uh, that's when Terry Crawford called and said, hey, I'm going to Texas. And would you like to come as a field event coach, full-time track? The Terry Crawford. The Terry Crawford. Come on, man. I love Terry so much. <laughs> we got to work with her so much when we were working with USATF Coaches Education. I, I don't know of a, a more tireless person for educating coaches. And, you know, with my passion on coaches, yeah. like we click so well. So you got to go to the University of Texas with Terry Crawford. Right. I was part of the group that wow. after, in fact, she stayed with me during the 84 trials. And then after that, well, she went back to Tennessee, but then I got in the car with actually two of the athletes that were coming with us and started the drive from LA, <laughs> God oh, forbid, gosh. LA to Austin. Did you stop over in Phoenix? Yes, stopped in <laughs> Phoenix, <laughs> waved to Phoenix and then yeah. headed to Austin. So, um, and, and that's where I've been for the last 30 some years. So uh, got the full-time job because I said, you know, I, I took a big pay cut to go to Texas, but again, I said, okay, it's been your dream to coach full-time. You've always wanted to coach full-time and not have to do this teaching, right. coaching thing as, as a sideline. So basically bite the bullet and let's do it. And so that's what I did. did and it, so it we went in. Expectations? You say, was it up to my expectations? Did, did it lead, live up to your expectations? You're like, hey, I'm finally a full-time coach. Was it right. as glorious and paved in gold and everything as you thought it would be? <laughs> it was interesting. Let's put it that way. Um, well, again, now we're into NC2A men world now. Right, okay. And so Texas, of course, is Texas. And, uh, you know, the expectations are very high there. So we had a staff of three. And uh, it was Terry, John Miller, and myself. And ironically, John had been a uh, grad assistant at Arizona State back when I was coaching there. And then he had been an assistant with Terry at Tennessee. So we all kind of knew each other, which was great. Yeah. You know, the, the synergy of the crew was excellent. So that was yeah. not a problem. And you're just coaching women, right? Like just women. Yeah, it wasn't allowed. I'm doing air quotes again here. Right. Like they have a, a mixed gender coaching staff and coaching athletes. No, you didn't do that. It was still unheard girl. of, right? Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And and again, on the men's side, uh, Cleburne Price had been there forever. And oh, so yeah. the men, James Blackwood was a men's assistant, but he was very welcoming and reaching out to us and everything. So again, the whole Southern hospitality and all of that clicked in uh, so going in there it was kind of interesting and yet we knew it was the expectations the athletic director is Donna Lopiano because again the women's department is separate from the men's and Donna Lopiano if you know women's athletics is one of the leading people uh, on the national scene 
uh, one of the pioneers, you talk about legends, she's a legend in women's athletics. And so she had a meeting with us and she, you know, welcome to Texas and all this. Here's the expectations. I expect you to win conference every year and be in the top 10 nationally. And if you're not, then we will have a discussion. No pressure, <laughs> so, no pressure at all. And, no and pressure. Are, are you in the Southwestern Conference? What was it back then? Back then it was Southwestern Conference. Yeah, yeah. And it was a monster. I'm a huge, I'm an SEC homer. And from my understanding, the Southwest Conference would put the SEC to shame. Like it was Back then, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was unbelievable. I mean, Houston and women's track was very strong. You had, you know, Carol Lewis and that crew and obviously Tom Telez leading the way. Wow. So, I mean, they had dominated the the mm. conference until we got there. <laughs> oh, nice. That was good. I like that. I was like that. So what was yes. it like? Um, you're, you're coaching full-time now. So are you still coaching any post-collegiates? What are you doing on the, are, are we at USATF at that point? Or are we still TAC? Um, I think we were still TAC, actually. Yeah, I can't remember when that change happened. Are you doing any kind of TAC coaching at that point? Olympic trials, Olympic teams? Actually, um, let me see. My first USA team was in 74 as uh, assistant manager for a USA-USSR dual meet which was in Durham at Duke. Oh, wow. And uh, Nell Jackson, who again is a legend, another legend of women's track and field, she was the head manager. So she taught me what to do. And I'm like 23 years old, yeah. you know, on the senior team. And so basically I was definitely listening to her. And so um, being in the States and being kind of a home meet, it, it was a real good experience, but uh, it was funny because that's where I met Mary Decker. And of course she was the youngest on the team and I was young. So we kind of hung together because the senior athletes didn't want to really hang with her. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was funny because back then you had men's dorms and women's dorms and God forbid that they ever interact. And so uh, one day I was walking by the door, Kate Schmidt, the javelin thrower mm -hmm. she's there she's got a ground floor room and the way the dorms were set at duke is they had big windows so if you had a ground floor room you could open the window and there were no screens so you could climb in and out of the windows oh trouble yeah well mac wilkins climbed in the window <laughs> so here's the open door i walk by and kate's there mac's there and somebody else i forget and i was like oh god what do I do now? Yeah. You know, so I walk back again and I'm like, okay, at least they see me walking around here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, but you're 23. They're like, exactly. Whatever. And Mac is Mac, you know, back in the day. And <laughs> Kate is Kate back in the day. And so I'm like, okay. So I go in and I'm like, Kate, can you help me out? Number one, shut the door so I don't see this. <laughs> or Mac, will you climb back out the window and just talk through the window? So they both took it as a joke, thank God. And uh, you shut the door and went on. But that was, that I always remember is, okay, now we've got to deal with that. And here I've got two world record type people and I'm supposed to say, okay, get out of the room. But uh, Valerie Bortsoff later that, after the season i mean after the meet you know it was usa ussr so valerie bortsoff is there the sprinter coming off 
72 Olympic gold medals and all that. Well, he was trying to hit on, actually some of the women had a bet as to who would be the first one oh, to, well, uh, shall we say uh, conquer Valerie yeah, Marshall. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so uh, he, he came in to the dorm and was trying to get into some of the girls' rooms. And I was like, no, no, nit, nit. And yeah, yeah. Uh, then all he wanted was cigarettes. So at that time, I'm like, okay, I don't smoke. Where am I going to find cigarettes, you know? So uh, he left and uh, avoided that controversy, uh, international scene with him. But uh, so that was my first USA experience. See, and, it's not uh, all that different from coaching today. Like, no. <laughs> we still have to deal with, hey, man, you can't be over there. And, hey, come on now. <laughs> right, right. That part is staying the same. And it was... It was kind of cute because afterwards, uh, Patty Van Wolvelaer, the hurdler, she was again one of the top hurdlers back then. And uh, she had wrote me a little note afterwards and said, you know, thank you for all you did. You did a great job. And she said, P.S., how old are you? And uh, <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> she said, I don't know how old you are, but you did a really good job. So I kind of, again, you talk about pioneers i think i just kind of pushed my way in yeah. uh, by being there and volunteering for three things and saying hey i want to be involved right. and just kept kept going and so i did keep working up the usatf tac ladder uh through development mm -hmm. uh harman brown and co uh, high school or high jump development and then i've been development chairman also for um many years in the, what would be mid nineties to two thousands. So um, worked and coordinated that because again, we, we had funding to help some of the programs that weren't funded or some of the events that weren't funded as much. And of course, that's when we were trying to get triple jump in, pole vault in, steeplechase in. And so we were really pushing as someone who was on the ground floor, you mentioned, you know, the events we just did there, the triple, the pole vault, um, steeple. As someone who was kind of um, on the ground floor and I'm going to say behind the scenes, what were some of the, uh, they just have to be asinine, I just, ha I know it, but what were some of the excuses, I love your eye roll right there. <laughs> what, what were some of the excuses and, and why were they upheld? <laughs> why were people like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, First of all, you got to remember the IAAF, or now Women World Athletics, the, the head group, the international group. It, it seems like at that time, because we've got pretty much all the events in, but that time we were trying to get equality for women's event numbers versus men event numbers. But the IAAF was run by a bunch of old white men and European, which again, they don't care so much for change. And it also boiled down to, at times, if they didn't have some athletes that would suddenly become leaders of the event, they were able to vote against it. Uh, triple jump, it was the fact that the pounding would hurt the women's reproductive organs. That's the one I loved. Sue, come on. I swear to God. I, as a man, I hang my head in shame right now. <laughs> Yes. Aye, aye. Okay. So that was that was one of the beginning reasons is that the women weren't strong enough, and that that jarring would um, hurt their in insides. I'm glad 
<laughs> right now in 2020, we can laugh about this because we know the outcome, but oh my God, I mean, you guys, and I say you guys meaning women, and even you had to have some smart men on your side as well. You had to be just oh, yeah, yeah, your head yeah. like, like are we right. no, I mean, we're arguing here? Yeah, I mean, we had leader, you know, uh, Brooks Johnson, who, you know, is still a leader, Harmon Brown, uh, Burt Lyle, Ed Temple, you know, there were definitely men coaching women that were very active and very progressive toward that. So it was not always all the men on one side, the women on the other. There were some men that definitely took uh, took a stand and, and helped us, no doubt about it. I'm sorry, I'm a little <laughs> lost for words because it's just, again, in 2020, and we still have our own issues now today, of course, we're still fighting for a lot of equality. Uh, well, steeplechase, you should have seen the stuff that that went through because they were arguing about the depth of the pit or the, right. you know, the landing and the water jump. And did we have to put an insert in because of the angle that they would yes. come off of the hurdle? And uh, Pat Patrick Shane at BYU did all these studies and different projections and everything. Uh, the hurdle height, obviously, you guys had to make hurdle barriers that mm. were shorter. Right. So, and that the economic factor there, see, mm -hmm. and that was another factor, how many right. schools can afford new right. equipment. Right. Um, in the triple jump, it was a matter at that time of just painting more boards yeah. down. Yeah. But um, in 86, 85, 86, actually at Texas, we had the first NC2A women's triple jump champion, Terry Turner. And what would happen, there was another uh, jumper at Florida State, Esmeralda Garcia, and they were both jumping 43, 44 feet every meet. Well, the boards were not far enough back, so their step would be in the sand. And every meet we went to, we'd have to argue to get a further board. And it was like, come on, you guys. And so sometimes I'd have to have Terry go through and just do a, you know, a hop and a step to show the official, you know, she can't do a step in the sand, but we were fighting that too, as from a facility point of view. I remember on the steeplechase, um, it was 2001, so the 2000 trials had just occurred the year before, and a really, like if I mention this coach's name, and I won't, because uh, I, I don't want to shame anybody in they're a good friend of mine now, uh, came back from the trial. It was a high level, still is, and said, hey, boys and girls, this steeplechase for women, we're going to get someone killed. I don't know why we're doing, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I do remember specifically saying we're going to kill someone. They were just like, they were adamant. I just saw it at the trials. It is a disaster. Someone's going to die. <laughs> And, and, and I didn't know enough, you know, I was still real early in my coaching career then, but I was like, oh man, they must know something there. And now I look back and I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, I've well, seen some rough steeples, but I've also seen men rough steeples and women. Like it's a, it's a brutal event. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, the first women that ran the event, I do have to admit were very raw. You know, and so it was painful to watch them sometimes. Okay, do hurdle remember, and do the water jump. Do you remember the first time you see you saw girls and women pole vault? Okay, let's take it a step back. Can you think right now the first time you saw a boy or a guy pole vault steeple for the first time? It ain't pretty. It's the same. Yeah, Never. I mean, no, it's, it's not. It's, no one yeah. naturally picks up a pole 
I don't care if you're male or female and just clears 10 feet. No, no one does it. Right. You, you, it, it's, it's coordination. It's a beginning. It's a, I mean, you, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Hi, yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you, you know, earlier I alluded to about, you know, you working at the gas station. I talked about selfless versus selfish. You gave that story about on the world athletic side of, you know, countries and people that were in charge afraid of adding an event because their their country wouldn't immediately be successful. Now that is the definition of selfish right there. Not for the greater <laughs> of the sport, but hey, right. we can have our country not leading right off the bat. So we're not we're just not even gonna have the event. I mean And see that was what would happen is you'd have a voting block from what I was told. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I would never sat in the meeting that they were voting on, but this is what we were told that, you know, is that the countries would get in a block and, you know, Europe would get with certain African countries and I'll do this if you'll do that. And, you know, so we were outvoted. You, you mean and, politics. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Surprise. Right? <laughs> well, yes. talk to us. You have, uh, again, we talk about this small fraternity of, of people. You were, uh, you were an Olympic coach for us for Team USA. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate in 2004. Yeah. Uh, to be the head women's coach in Athens. And then uh, leading up to that, in 92, I was the head manager for the team in uh, Barcelona. And in 96, uh, assistant coach in Atlanta. So those are my three Olympic experiences, which were all fantastic for various reasons. So what's it like, you know, we, we talked about different experiences of setting world records, of getting my first full-time coaching job. Those are all big and wonderful, and we can, you know, we can remember them like they were yesterday. Almost no one listening right now. <laughs> I said almost. I know someone's listening, but almost no one listening right now can even fathom the name or the time that you were told, hey, Sue, you're going to be the head coach for the highest part of our, of our sport, of the Olympic team for team usa i mean tell me well it's kind of else. funny when i got the call actually we were in san francisco i guess there was a meet up there there had to have been a meet we we're at remy kochimney's birthday party so it was a big function and um i knew they were voting that night the committee was voting that night and I was sitting with Robin Johnson, who's at Berkeley now and was one of my jumpers at Texas, one of my athletes there at Texas. So I'm very proud of her and all that yeah. she's achieved. She's awesome. But um, so we were sitting there and with several of the athletes, I go, you know, I was waiting to get the call. And so uh, we're at the party and all of that stuff, but I just kept looking at my flip phone. By now I've progressed to oh, a flip phone. <laughs> so I worked my way up. And, uh, and then I got the call and I remember leaning down under the table or, you know, that type of thing and, and getting the call. So it was a magical moment, definitely. I mean, did you uh, stop the DJ, stop the party? <laughs> hey, everybody, I have an announcement. No, because actually it was unofficial. Uh, mm -hmm. Whoever called me, you know, it was like, don't tell anybody I called you. Right, right. And because uh, we didn't have to go, we still had to go through a lot of paperwork and, you know, background checks and all of that. But at least the committee had voted. And that's, that was kind of the main thing. So once that was over, it was definitely a big, uh, a big relief and big excitement and 
a big task ahead of me, that's for sure. Yeah, so talk to us, you know, there's several sides to what we know from the outside of what the head coach of the Olympic team is responsible for. What are the duties of the head coach of the Olympic team? Uh, and did you do the um, opening ceremonies walk? <laughs> and I if sure so, did. What is that like? That's amazing. <laughs> well, actually, the opening ceremonies in 92 were the most memorable in Spain because back then we had the dream team and uh, and I had a women's basketball player who had made the USA team that I trained also. Oh, wow. So I had Charles Austin there, uh, the men's high oh, jumper. Yeah. And then I had a women's basketball player on the team, on the USA team also. Wow. And uh, so basically as far as the managerial side, it's like getting everybody together and making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be and travel and all that. Mm -hmm. And so that afternoon, Gail Devers had come in because again, track and field never travels as a team. They're all individual. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you got 30 athletes, you got 30 different flights to oh, meet. Right. Yeah. And so we had gotten all of our gear and we were getting it back to the um, dorm room you know and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it to the opening ceremonies because obviously taking care of her was more of a priority mm -hmm. but uh, luckily it all worked out and again the dream team met us in the tunnel and I because all these screams went up and I thought oh my god what happened and then it was the dream team and so walking in with them and all the screams and stars and stripes forever being played uh, was just unbelievable I mean, it, you look out, you see all the flags and the people, and I mean, it was everything you think it would be. Like, and I, I, don't that know, I, was, could, I don't think I could breathe. Like, I mean, I mean the weight <laughs> of the moment, I'd be, I forget to breathe. It, it was, it was awesome. And of course, unfortunately, the security in Barcelona down on the field was not real strong. So other countries stormed us trying to get to the dream team. Oh, I thought you were going to say to get to you and get your autograph. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. No, to the dream team. Oh, okay, well, I guess that makes <laughs> yeah, sense. Yeah, sure, Michael sure, Jordan sure. and I worked together on that one. But <laughs> actually, Charles Barkley uh, came back and mingled with the rest of us peons on the USA team and uh, was great fun. Uh, so I do have a special place in my heart for Charles Barkley. You know, I have to point out, as a guy from Alabama, Charles Barkley from Alabama, right. of course. So yeah, right. I, I get it. I, I know he would be that way. I get it. He, I get it. he yeah. was very good about that. And of course, some of the other, you know, Jordan and Bird and those guys did not participate with us too well. Uh, it was kind of funny because they were staying in some on a ship or in a hotel or something. The men's team did. The women's team had to stay in the village, the women's basketball team. But the men's basketball team had a high ranking place. And so Pippen and some of them would come over and back in the camcorder days, they would come and take videos of us in the village, almost like here's what the uh, regular animals do. Uh, during the that's day. what I was thinking, and like a zoo. Yeah, like, zoo, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's what that was like. But the 92 opening ceremonies were most memorable to me. Uh, the, the reason why the others weren't quite as much, the music, when you came in, uh, it, it wasn't as pe peppy or patriotic or whatever you want to call it. It was, you know, it was more of a downer type of tone. It wasn't the rah-rah that the Stars and Stripes Forever is so uh but coming in in um in uh, athens you know and just going around and we were right up by the speaker so you know that was nice but 
you know, the mingling of athletes amongst countries and amongst the USA team is really great because you're in a holding room or holding gym ahead of time. Like you have to get there five hours or so ahead of oh, the yeah, opening ceremonies. Yeah. And so you're all stuck in this gymnasium that's maybe 100, 150 meters from the track. And so they give you your little paper sack lunch and uh, water and all of this stuff and tell you to just sit here. So you can mingle and go around. And I mean, that's where, again, the basketball players were great in 04 mm -hmm. um, as to mingling and taking pictures and doing all of that interaction uh, compared to earlier teams. So that part was nice. And then, you know, you march in and there it is. And then you got to stay there for the whole, all the speeches and everything, which is a bit long. Uh, but, you know, it's just the whole magic of the moment. And then in Athens, they pulled um, a sheet or a tarp type thing over us before the firecrackers started, the fireworks started. And so when we were getting this light, it was a very light cotton type of sheet that was pulled over us. And then we hear all this boom, 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 boom. And we're thinking, oh my God, we're getting killed here. But because uh, oh. again, 04, we're right in the middle of all the wars yeah. and safety. And, you know, we've got the Secret Service with us and all of that. So wow. that was a little scary, but, you know, it was quickly dismissed because they quickly took it off of us. But uh, I'm not sure. I haven't actually looked back at the video, the VHS video of that uh, ceremony. To I mean, see what the purpose of that was. When you look back at it in today's world, it seems like the opening ceremonies, and they're amazing. I mean, they're viewed on TV more than some of the events, right? It does seem like an antiquated ceremony at this point. You know, the, the, all the athletes, these high-performing athletes are at the meat of your life, and you've got to be put in a gym for five hours, you get the sack lunch. You know, we talk about the nutrition and things. You get a sack right, lunch right. There was no nutrition. And a bottle of water. You're on your feet. Uh, then you go into the, you know, the stadium and you're still there for more hours during the speeds and the, the, um, uh, the flame. I mean, it, it is a little bit like, what do we, is there a different way of doing this? Like, <laughs> well, and, and some, some coaches, yeah. I mean, some athletes and coaches will not march. Mm because well the swimmers and gymnasts don't usually because they start the next day oh okay and so you're you don't want somebody that's mm -hmm. competing to go that next day that mm -hmm. it definitely takes it out of you but track starts a week later so we at least have a week to recover if you mm -hmm. will and kind of an anecdotal thing in 04 ashton uh, alec felix Al allison felix that was her first olympics so here she is 18 years old pat conley's her coach and of course, anybody who knows Pat Conley, you know, she's very regimented, Evelyn Ashford's coach mm. back in the day. She was at uh -huh. UCLA and Pat herself was an Olympic pentathlete back then, uh, multi-eventer. So Pat's so very structured and very set, but Allison wanted to go to opening ceremonies. And Pat was, to go to opening ceremonies, we were housed at Crete, which was an island, an hour flight to Athens. So Crete was our home base until we flew into the village. And so um, Allison and Pat are going back and forth and which way they're going to go. And so finally a compromise was made that if I watched over Allison, monitored her training that day, and made sure she was back on the plane the next day, that she could go. 
So I'm like, okay, no pressure, Sue. You got all the other team to do with and Allison. And so uh, actually the workout that day was for her to run a barefoot 100s on the grass. And so I'm like, okay, I took off my shoes and socks, walked this field to be sure there were no rocks or glass Mm -hmm. or anything. Because the last thing I wanted to do was go back and tell Pat that That's Allison. That's the first thing foot. I thought of. Good. Okay. Good. Yeah. yeah. So I said, my feet I can sacrifice, but not Allison. So everything went well. I got her. We all got back on the plane. Yeah. Everything was fine, and Allison got her opening ceremonies experience. So that was a, a to do situation there. But it's that kind of stuff. As head coach, you're like, okay, I'm making sure that's happening. Make sure the entries are in. Make sure, you know, you got to do all the press uh, and deal with the media. And, of course, uh, George Williams was the head men's coach. Yeah. So, uh, and he and I get along great. So, it was a real good experience. Yeah, I love those stories like that. Those are the um, job descriptions that are not on the job description. Nowhere did it say, hey, so you might have to test out uh, the training area because – you can Walk go down. barefooted. You can't have them go down. Right, right. Don't worry if your foot gets cut. But again, that goes back to that selflessness. It's like, okay, hey, if I have to coach with bandaged up foot or crutches, whatever, okay. But the athlete can't. They, they're done. They're toast. And not only does that hurt the athlete, that hurts Team USA. So, okay, right. I'll, I'll, I'll be the one who sacrifices if you have to make a sacrifice. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and it's, you know, I know Brooks, we Brooks is adamant about his athletes not going to opening ceremonies mm-hmm. and uh, you know because it is a mentally and physically draining activity mm-hmm. uh, but again for some kids that aren't medalists that's their Olympic experience that's their medal podium mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. and uh, so that's where you know where we do have a week to deal with it I hate to not have them go uh, if there's any way of working it out you know, and then closing ceremonies is just kind of like a zoo. Everybody just goes and it's not structured. It feels like you could make really good arguments on both sides, not going, yet also going. I mean, it's right. Uh, it just seems like there's no clear cut. I mean, it's, yeah. It, yeah. Did you train and prepare for that and structure mm-hmm. the workouts and everything? Right, and, right. you know, how much time back and forth? You know, like in Atlanta, we were 30 minute bus ride down the freeway from opening ceremonies back to Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. to the dorm so that was an easier transit even though getting on the buses was kind of a (laughs) survival of the fittest but um, you know it was a closer situation then I think Rio it was very long you know like an hour Mm -hmm. plus Mm -hmm. going back and forth so you got to check the venue area too Mm -hmm. so let's catch up to today. What are we doing today, Sue? Where are you coaching? What, who are you coaching? What, what are we doing today? Okay, well, now I'm independent and just working with some uh, high school athletes and uh, pro high jumper, Rachel McCoy. Uh, so I'm working with her and then uh, two or three high school kids that are doing well here on the, in the Austin, Central Texas area, doing some private lessons uh have some kids that just come and want to learn how to jump or run and do different things um i did a four-year high school stint at saint stephen's episcopal school uh several years ago just to do a high school situation and uh actually one of my 
former students from that experience is a starting center for the Brooklyn Nets basketball team, Jared what? Allen. Holy cow. So uh, I, I've posted some pictures of us together. He's like seven feet tall and I'm five two at best. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's major, it's major. But, and the funny thing with Jared is he was definitely a basketball player, you know, and came out and did track kind of just to do track, but he didn't always want to jump, high jump, because he said he was afraid of heights. And I'm like, how can you be afraid of heights when you're seven feet tall? So, but we got some of his buddies out there and they would jump and encourage each other on. So yeah. it was a lot of fun. We had, when I coached high school in Chicago, one of our, I was in the Chicago Catholic League and on one of our other teams, so we'd see him at meets all the time, got to know him a little bit. Uh, Fenwick High School, I think it was, was a guy named Corey Maggetti. Uh, Corey signed with Duke for basketball. So that tells you the level of, basketball and he you know he played some years in the NBA yeah and he might have been one of the most terrible long jumpers I've ever seen <laughs> now to his credit he, he still jumped like 22 something tw maybe he jumped even 23 which you know in high school that's nothing to be that's not bad yeah but his I, I guarantee you he couldn't have practiced more than once every two or three weeks because of his club basketball recruiting I mean it was yeah. fanatical well, at that point the funny thing with Jared is he he wore a size 16 spike well the shoe companies don't make that i was gonna say who makes catalogs that? yeah so i called in on my buddies at nike and said is there any way you can get these stretched or made or whatever so they did get us some shoes so that he would have wow. uh uh, so I do have those as a trophy case situation here. My uh, trophy case, that's the whole 60. trophy. <laughs> it's a whole case, yeah. <laughs> one, one shoe is the whole case. <laughs> well, as we start to wrap up, Sue, you know, um, I'm, I'm just so in awe of what you have done in regards to women's athletics, specifically track and field, and more so for me and our passion here at Gale Athletics is the coaching side of it. Uh, the the trail you have blazed, right? You hear that all the time, but you know, literally, uh, the things that you have done for coaching for women's coaching in the sport of track and field, regardless of coaching women, coaching men, coaching coaching yeah. track and field, um, and we still, you know, even today, when you look at the number of head coaches and assistant coaches that are women, uh, you know, it's I, hate, I don't want to say it's finite, but it's it's pretty small, especially right. that are. Uh, the women's participation in uh, in college and the a girls' participation in high school for track and field. I mean, it's it's out of this world. I mean, it's overall track and field is the highest participated sport there is. A quote unquote, everybody has done track and field at some point. Right. What can we do as uh, as fellow coaches that are listening, administrators? Uh, what do we need to be doing to either encourage more women into coaching or to make sure we're mentoring? Uh, women and the right women to become head coaches and, and such? That's, that's a hard one because, you know, the, the catch too is in our society, we still, in many cases, if it's a woman's job versus a husband's job, the family will go where the men's jo husband's job is. Mm -hmm. um, there are very few that I've run across and I don't want to say Mr. Mom, like stay at home, but men, husbands that let the wives' jobs run the show, so to speak, or, you know, that if she gets a head coaching job at school X, the family will move there. 
And so we're still fighting some of that with, you know, the women's responsibility for family and, you know, time allotment and children and everything else. You know, it's it's still hard because then when you do have children, can they come to practice or what, you know, you got the childcare issue and just the whole timing of a family structure. Um, I did give up all of that. Uh, I'm single, I've always been single and, you know, teaching middle school was the best birth control I ever had. So, you know, I don't have to worry about that. Um, I have kids that are all my ex-athletes, uh, you know, thousands of them and I'm able to experience kid nieces and nephews through them. In other words, like the second generation, uh, go to graduations, football games, soccer games. I mean, I have a very full schedule. Uh, once these club sports start opening up again. So that's been my life as far as not having to deal. I don't know how how uh, women do it as to having a coaching job and a full-time family's responsibility and that. I mean, it's, it's definitely got to take uh, a working agreement with the partner. And uh, again, it's the colleges are not giving, I, I don't, you know, I've been out of the college scene for a while, but it does disturb me that there are not more women coaches on the college level. And it's a matter of, but I don't want a woman in there just because she's a woman. That's, that's the one thing that we want to be careful of, that we're not just putting somebody in because that sets it all back years. You know, is you've got to have somebody in there that's willing to sacrifice and willing to do the long hours and uh, not saying, oh, I got to go because my kid's sick, you know, and, and so that gets to be a pull on what society norms are, you know, and, and again, just giving the opportunity for women to get in. And I think it is more common now for women coaching men. One thing I forgot to mention or didn't forget, but we didn't, in 96, uh, I was very fortunate to have one of my athletes, Charles Austin, win the gold medal in the Olympic high jump. And of course, that was like, you know, that's for the top of coaching, you know, is to coach a gold medalist or a world champion or whatever. And so Charles and I'd worked together from 91 through 2000. So we have had many wow. championships and many experiences. But that's where I wanted to call the athletic director at Arizona State and say, oh, I guess I can coach men. But <laughs> I didn't. But um, again, you know, as now there's no issue of me being able to coach men. In other words, my high school athletes right now are all guys. But 10 years ago, that was still a stigma that can't, you know, you kind of, it's women have to prove themselves that they can coach men. And that's unfortunate because now with coaches education and all these programs that are going on, the women have all these opportunities now that we didn't have before. And so if there are women that are really focused and dedicated and wanting to commit, and you got to commit to it. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's all or nothing. Uh, because if you go in and do a half-baked job, it's a reflection on you, but it's also a reflection on the gender. And that's what's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't get to um, succeed or fail on who you are. You have the weight of all women coaches and future women coaches on your shoulders. Like, yeah, see, she couldn't do it. Therefore, right. the next 10 women can't do it either. Yeah, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to be uh, one, one of my stints when I coached my boss was, was a woman coach, Sue Parks. Uh, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and I just remember, you know, having been co been head coached with other men, and then my next job at Mississippi State, I had a, a man as a head coach, and I remember there was no skipping a beat. Like her, her, her head coach, her as my boss, prepared me to become an SEC coach. I mean, there was just it didn't matter that her name was Sue or Sam. Right. <laughs> you know, it right. was like hey, right. you need to do this and this and this and this if you want to be successful. Point blank. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think of other coaches who are women from the Amy Deems, Yvonne Wades, Beth Alfred Sullivan's, uh, Karen Dennis. I mean, I probably just named how many national champions and team titles that I just named just in right. those women alone, and I'm missing a lot. Uh, please forgive me if I did not mention your name. You know I love you. Um, <laughs> I, always, I always tell myself when I get on these podcasts, don't list because you're going to miss someone and somebody's going to, and I'm going to hear about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do think of, you know, and again, I was just so blessed to be uh, my boss to be Sue Farks. And I just think about it. It's like, it just seems so, I don't know, ridiculous that because you're a mom or a dad or a woman or a male that you can or cannot, it mm -hmm. just blows me, especially when the, the hypocrisy of, Oh, well, you're for a man, you can coach women. But if you're a woman, I'm not sure. Can you yeah. coach men? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's see. So I mean, I think that I mean I know that that's a whole lot different now than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I first started this. Where then you know you definitely looked around the room and you were the only one there. Mm -hmm. uh, where now it, there's a lot more. Like when I go to the coaches convention or uh, USATF convention and things like that, there you know a lot more women involved. It's a matter of being able to have more women on these combined staffs you know i mean i understand the economics of a combined staff and you know that again you are coaching men and women but then you look at the structure of these combined staffs and there are not a lot of women on those staffs mm -hmm. you know and that's unfortunate and the question then would be is why is that you know is it that you couldn't find a qualified woman mm -hmm. or you weren't paying enough for a qualified woman i i don't know Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's the thing I've always run into with pay is <laughs> I've always been at the bottom. I mean, my pay at Texas was $16,000. Yes. You, you hit the big six. time. You got your full-time coaching job. At I Texas. got my full-time job. I took a $9,000 pay cut to get my dream. So, you know, at what at, wow. could a family do that? A family probably couldn't have done that. Right. You know, I was able to, you know, make it work. So, you know, there's a lot of off the track type of things that play into this. And that's what's still uh, a major factor, I think. Well, I love that we're, we're at least still fighting. I wish, and maybe the fight never ends, but I wish there was, there wasn't a need for as much of a fight. But, uh, you know, I think of um, Marissa Chu and the coaches collab group, and, you know, they've done meeting or, uh, you know, mediums, I guess, uh, right. women coaching and you got people, you know, that's where I got to meet uh, Janice, uh, I'm probably going to butcher her last name, Clooster, I think it is, uh, who's done a lot of um, uh, gender equity studies and knows a lot of those studies and uh, that we're just fighting to just be included. Like, you know, I see a lot of guys and I love, love uh, uh, guy coaches that they get take a chance gets taken on them. Well, why, why can't we take a chance? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean, that's the thing, like you say, you know, there are a lot of people a lot of women out there you know who I think you know are wanting to take that as somebody to take a chance on them mm -hmm. or you know one thing that I ran into is I went back in 80 I I did go I figured okay 
let me again try this is the university of montana <laughs> what a switch from phoenix arizona yeah so that job opened up so i said well let me just see so they brought me up for an interview and uh you know and i looked around and did the whole interview and everything and just realized that that was more of a distance um setting and you know a culture there but they offered me the job and uh you know and i i think you know okay do i want to be a head coach do i i want to stay here at asu assistant you know full-time part-time da 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 but again i just didn't feel right even though the people in montana were very nice and very welcoming and everything it wasn't that it was just the fit the events weren't there you know if i was a distance coach it would have been perfect and that would have gotten me a step into the head coaching job because that i find too is that i've been assistant coach at texas we won four national championships in five years wow. uh, coach olympic gold medalists i've been you know all of this stuff and yet because i don't have head coaching title then that's looked down upon, you know, and it's like, how do you get experience if you're right. not getting an opportunity? Right. And how do you say that a head coach at the University of X is better than being an assistant at the University of Texas? Right. I, I don't think there's any question that, you know, the experiences that I've had at Texas or had at Texas, and because then I was able to stay on there as volunteer assistant for the men uh ironically stan huntsman brought me in in 93 to work with the men's team at texas in the jumpers so you know it's it's there but a lot of this as you see are volunteer or part-time and you know it's the way it's been well sue if someone's listening right now and they are maybe they're a senior athlete and they think they want to get into coaching. Uh, maybe they are an assistant coach now, or they're still trying to get into the um, uh, coaching world, or maybe they're even an administrator. I know we have some administrators that listen to the podcast and they want to figure out how do they overcome their own biases to hire a female coach. How might someone get a hold of you to maybe just bounce ideas off or anything like that? Okay, well, um, I don't have Twitter and all of that stuff. I <laughs> I do have Instagram and Facebook, though, but um, ironically, and it's pretty easy to remember, my email is my last name, Humphrey H.J. for high jump. So Humphrey H.J. at Gmail. So if they awesome. want to shoot me a line, that's fine. Well, I, I appreciate you being open. I, I actually, that was out of left field. I didn't even tell you I was going to do that. I just think, <laughs> you know, when we have people, you know, I, I, I got the honor of uh, interviewing Brooks Johnson and Harry Maras. Uh, yesterday, I was just talking to, uh, to Brandon Morton, who got to interview Bev Kearney. I just think these uh, these pioneers, I mean, that's the best word I can think of. Someone who's pushing through the forest that there's been, been no path. You're creating it. You created a path. I just think right. we have to, you know, really honor those people. And I hope uh, uh, that that's what this does to you. It is, it's an honor for me to, to talk and learn about you, but that we use these resources for the people that we have today, that whether it's motivation for someone to fight today to clear right. another path for whether it's women or minorities, uh, for coaching, jobs, society, uh, I, I just would always love to be able yeah. to take that resource. And you are definitely one of those resources, Suze. Uh, well, just, thank you. So blessed that you would spend time with me today. I really am, Sue. I mean, to be able to oh, a, been learn, a joy. learn more about your journey, uh, never would have guessed that you were a midnight 
uh, <laughs> gas attendant. Uh, as a guy who worked midnights once in my life, I have so much respect for the third shift. I uh, never want to do that again. I'm sure you're in that same boat. You never want to do that again. I got a lot of reading done from uh, midnight to two, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, just so blessed and honored you would uh, be with us today, Sue. I'm just so, so thankful. I appreciate everything. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks, Sue. Okay. Well, that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on iTunes and hit that subscribe button. As well, we encourage you to connect with others and share the podcast on your social media. Looking forward to next time when we connect you with another great track and field connection. Bye, guys.